here we are in our series of studies through Philippians. Our big theme, remember, is the fellowship of the gospel. And we're going to be looking at the verses that we read today. We're going to drill down into just a couple of the verses out of, out of um, the whole passage that we read. But again, let me just remind you of our, our background here, just to, to get the context, because we pick up our reading today with a therefore. And whenever you come to a therefore, it's always... Uh, going to give you a word that, that is connected to what has previously been said. So remember that Paul is uh, writing this letter to this church in Philippi. This is a church that he, uh, he's just deeply connected with. He loves these people. Uh, he knows them personally. He genuinely cares about them. And he's writing them, remember, from prison. He's in a prison cell in Rome. And he's writing them from there. And they are deeply concerned about Paul. They're concerned about his well-being. They're concerned about whether or not he's ever going to be freed from his imprisonment, whether or not they're ever going to see him again. And so that's, that's the background for the things that he's writing to them. And what Paul wants more than anything is regardless of whether he ever sees them again or not, he wants them to flourish in their relationship with God. And so that is basically why he's instructing them the way he is in the passage that we read. So the passage there begins, therefore, my beloved. And so therefore, it, it, it basically means because of these things that I've just been saying to you, this is now how I want you to respond. So uh, because of everything I've been telling you about God using even my imprisonment, he told them that, even though I'm in prison, uh, God's still at work. Members of Caesar's household are hearing the gospel and others are looking on at my chains and they're becoming bold in their faith. And so the gospel is going out further. So because of that, uh, because of everything that I've been telling you about Christ, who being God uh, humbled himself and became of no reputation and he didn't come with any selfish ambition or conceit, but he laid all that aside. And, and I want you to do that amongst yourselves. And, and so then he's coming to this. Uh, Even in my absence, work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. And then he says, do everything without complaining and disputing, and then hold fast the word of life. So that's basically what he uh, exhorts them to do in the verses that we looked at. So what I want to do right now is I want to just walk through those verses again really quickly, just highlight a few things. But then we're going to come back and we're going to focus on uh, verses 12 and 13. That'll be the main uh, thrust of our 
message today. But as, as we go back over really quickly, so therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So again, Paul is just wanting them to know that even if I never see you again, keep following the Lord. Just continue to walk in obedience to him because regardless of whether I'm there or not, God is working in you. And, you know, just as we look at this passage, one thing that we're reminded of here, and I think it's a good reminder, is that our, our growth, our maturity, our development isn't ultimately uh, tied to those who lead us spiritually. Now, sometimes people make the mistake of, of um, putting too much emphasis on the leader. And so their, their, their relationship with the Lord is more vicariously developed through the pastor or through the elders or through the, the spiritual leader. And rather than them taking the initiative themselves and really cultivating their own relationship with the Lord, they, they have too much of a dependency. And, and Paul is, in a sense, he's telling them that it doesn't matter if they ever see him again. He's, he's not uh, the one who's going to assure their progress in the Lord. They can assure that themselves through working out their own salvation. They have a salvation that is theirs personally. And although Paul's the one who brought the gospel to them, their progress in the gospel is not dependent on him. So it's a good reminder to us to, we thank God for those who lead us. We thank God for those who teach us. But all of us need to have um, our own personal connection with the Lord and make sure we're working out our own salvation independent of those other influences. So, you know, thank God for the pastors uh, of the churches. Um, speaking to you as a pastor, I, I'm, I'm thankful that you're thankful for me. Um, and, you know, thank God for those who minister to us, whether we hear them on the radio or we might listen to a favorite podcast or whatever. Uh, but, you know, that that's good, but we can't become dependent on them for our spiritual growth and development. Uh, primarily, we have to make sure we are connecting with the Lord himself. So, so there is that in what Paul says to the Philippians there. But then he goes on, and so he's basically you know, telling them, look, whether I'm with you or not, uh, this is what I want you to do, work out your own salvation. But then he says this, he says, do all things without grumbling and arguing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. You know, it's interesting here the things that Paul points out, things that, that uh, we're not to engage in, grumbling and arguing. And then he says, do this in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you will shine as lights in the darkness. So these things seem kind of small, don't they? They seem kind of like 
not that big of a deal. And of course, we oftentimes in our own lives, we tolerate uh, attitudes of uh, complaining and disputing and those kinds of things. And we think, oh, well, that, that's not that big of a deal. That's just, that's just the way we are. I like to complain. But the truth is, in times of spiritual and moral darkness, even the smallest virtues stand out. And sometimes it's those small things that, that become a powerful witness. I remember reading this years and years ago from a German theologian who went through the whole thing with Hitler and the Third Reich and, and all that. He lived through it and he survived it. And he said, after the fact, looking back on it, he said, in those days, sometimes the most powerful witness was simply someone who told the truth because there was no truth in, in the culture at the time. But he said that in and of itself was, was a powerful witness, a person who just had genuine integrity. So this is what Paul's saying. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, we're going to stand out if we're kind, if we're thankful, if we're uh, patient, and, and those kinds of things. So doing everything without complaining, com complaining and murmuring. You know, recently I've had a, a couple of situations where I've been somewhere, I've been in a line, you know, waiting for coffee. I think one was, uh, uh, I was waiting for some coffee and the line was taking longer than and anybody, you know, I didn't appreciate standing there for that long either. But there was a person in the line that started really like, kind of loudly complaining about it. And it just was so ugly. I just thought, wow, this is really not good. Um, this person, I, I don't know what they thought. They thought maybe everybody was uh, agreeing with them or approving of their grumbling and complaining. But I don't know, to me, it just seemed really, really um, just like, no, this is not good. And, but you see this in the culture today. There's an impatience there's a lack of consideration. I was at a, a little uh, restaurant that we go to to get some takeaway Mexican food. And this poor 17-year-old kid behind the counter is like 30 people decided to come in and order food all at the same time. And here's like this 17-year-old kid. You know, he's a surfer guy. And he's back there. And he is just, he is so overwhelmed. And I could just kind of see myself in him. I remember when I was his age and, and you know, I was thinking, oh, this poor kid. And then a couple of the 50-year-olds, oh, 60-year-olds, they started really getting kind of harsh with him and really sort of demanding, like, you know, you ought to do this and you better get your act together and all that. I thought, man, this is just not the way to, this isn't helping this guy at all. This isn't going to make the uh, food get prepared any quicker but you know, as Christians, this is these little things, these are areas where we should be different and people should see the difference in us. So that's what Paul is really talking about here. So then he goes on in verse 16 and he says, holding fast or firm the word of life. So he's exhorting the, the Philippians uh, to hold firm the word. Don't waver. Don't, don't cave in to the social pressure to 
um, to the social pressure to deny God's word or to reject it or whatever the case might be. And now look, this is, this is becoming more of an issue in our culture today. 20 years ago, you could be a Christian, hold on to the word of God, and people might have thought you were weird or didn't want to hear anything about it. But, you know, that they just kind of live and let live. But, you know, there's an element in the culture today that, that says the, your views, your biblical views are offensive. Your biblical views are hateful. Your biblical views should not be tolerated in the culture. And so because there's that kind of pressure coming now, some people are backing away. And they're not holding fast to the word of life. That would be the kind of pressure that the Philippians would have had at their time as well. But now things have come around to where that's the case today with us. And there's a lot of people that because of the pushback against those who are standing on the scripture when it comes to say, sexual issues, sexual ethics, sexual identity, and that kind of stuff. People are standing on the scripture, they're getting big pushback, and some people are just capitulating to the pressure. So I read this uh, article yesterday about these two YouTube guys, um, YouTubers, who are become relatively famous, and they're a couple of younger guys, they're really witty, they're bright, they're funny, and um, they used to be staff members for Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now called Crew. They were staff members, but they decided to go into the YouTube thing. They got pretty famous. But then as the process has gone on, they decided to jettison their faith as well. And not only have they now rejected the faith that they once believed and preached, now they are hoping to influence others to also reject the faith. And over and over again, so these are, we, they're, they're calling these deconversion stories. So a deconversion story, you know, a conversion story is you tell the story about how you came to faith. Well, a deconversion story is you tell the story about how you left the faith. And there's these deconversion stories in the culture today. And there's some people who have had um, relative prominence in the evangelical world who have now deconverted. And in their deconversion, they want everybody to hear the story and they want to influence people to not uh, believe anymore. And yet it's always so interesting because it comes back around when they tell their own story, it comes back around to, well, you know, I just couldn't really agree with what the Bible ha uh, says about, you know, sexual issues. I couldn't agree with what the Bible has to say about, um, you know, different things that are uh, hot topics in the culture today. So basically, they're trading um, their faith in God and his word for uh, acceptance with the, the culture at the moment. That, that's really what's going on. But my point is this. There's a huge pressure in the culture today that's increasing. And so... Paul says to them, hold fast, hold firm. And another translation could be even hold forth. So it's the idea is that you're both standing firm on the word of God, 
not only are you standing firm, but you're also holding it forth. You're proclaiming it in the face of a culture that is rejecting it. So that's what he encourages the Philippians to do. And he says there um, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So Paul sees that if they were to forsake the word of God, his efforts would have been in vain. But then he says this finally in the last two verses. um, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. When Paul refers to this idea of being poured out as a drink offering, he's alluding to this in the sacrificial system. uh, They would pour out um, an offering of wine on the sacrifice, and the wine offering that was poured out immediately evaporated. And so what Paul is saying is if my life is coming to an end, because at this time he doesn't know if he's going to live or die. If my life is coming to an end and if, and if all my ministry to you was what I've done thus far and now it's over, like a drink offering being poured out, he said, I'm happy for that to be the case. So for Paul, it's like, you know, if I'm freed eventually and I get to see you again and carry on ministry among you, I'm thrilled about that. If I actually die if I'm sentenced to death by the emperor and I'm executed, then I'm okay with that too. And I'm rejoicing. And he says, and you rejoice with me either way it goes. So that is the gist of what Paul is communicating in verses 12 through 18. But what we want to do today for our purpose here is we want to come and look at verses 12 and 13 specifically, these very um, encouraging verses. These, these are just, you know, some of the great, you know, there's certain texts in the scripture that just stand out and you think, man, these are great texts. And that's what we've got right here. Work out your own salvation, he says to them, with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. So that's where we're going to put our focus now um, as we move on today. So work out your own salvation. Now, some people have mistakenly thought that this passage was teaching that you work for your salvation, that this is how you get salvation. You work, you do good things, and then God sees the good things you do. And then if you've done enough good things, God saves you. But that's not what the passage says. It doesn't say uh, work for your salvation. No, notice salvation is already in their possession. They already have salvation. So it's Paul's calling is for them to work out what is already there the salvation that is there through their faith in Jesus Christ. So this is how we get saved, if you will. We get saved by putting our faith in Christ. And once we are saved, now salvation is in us. It it resides in us, God's salvation, his presence, his spirit. And what Paul is saying is that we are now to work out 
all the fullness of what God intended in the salvation that he has given us. So your salvation is the life of God in you, and God wants to bring that life out of you into your everyday experience in the way you think, act, and live. That's pretty much what Paul is saying. Work out your salvation. God has given you your salvation. It's a free gift. It's there. It resides in you. And now what God wants is all the potential that's there for your life to be um, a manifestation of the life of Christ. That's all there, but you're, you need now to work it out. So that's the idea. Now, Peter, in writing his second letter, he said something that's really kind of a parallel to what Paul is saying here. Peter just elaborates more on the idea. But let me read to you what Peter says. I'm going to read from the CSB. And um, the CSB is the Christian Standard Bible. And it says this. It says in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. So that's the key right there. Now, uh, older translation or the New King James says, add to your faith. I think the NIV says that as well. Add to your faith. So, so this is just another angle of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, work out your own salvation. Peter is putting it this way. Add to your faith. Your faith is your salvation. This is where you start. I have faith in Christ. I'm saved. Now, Peter says, supplement your faith. Add to it goodness. Moral excellence is another way to define the word that is also translated virtue. But here, goodness. Add to your faith goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, supplement endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. So this is what Paul is talking about. Just exactly what Peter said here. This is what he means when he says, work out your own salvation. So what we are really talking about today, we could define it as spiritual formation. Spiritual formation is a term that uh, you hear sometimes today. In a way, it's, it's like almost a bit of a substitute term for discipleship. Um, some who use spiritual formation feel like discipleship has become so... Uh, so frequently used that it's kind of lost its meaning to a lot of people. So spiritual formation is really discipleship, but it's just putting it in a new way to help us understand some really important things. So spiritual formation is the forming of your spiritual life. That's the idea behind it. Let me quote to you from Dallas Willard, who 
uh, wrote extensively on the subject of spiritual formation. In his book, The Great Omission, he said this. He defined spiritual formation a number of times in the book, but this is one of the definitions. Spiritual formation is the process through which those who love and trust Jesus Christ effectively take on his character. When this process is what it should be, they increasingly live their lives as he would if he were in their place. Their outward conformity to his example and his instructions rises toward fullness as, in their, as their inward sources of action take on the same character as his. They come more and more to share, those who are being spiritually formed come more and more to share his vision, speaking of Christ, his vision, love, hope, feelings, and habits. So the idea is that, so Christ dwells in us. When, when we talk about, uh, when Paul says work out your salvation, he's talking about the fact that Christ lives in us. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Paul said that to the Colossians. That's what salvation is. It's Christ in you. What spiritual formation is, is developing your spiritual life because Christ is in you and then letting that show itself through your lifestyle. Now, there's, there's probably too much emphasis on I'm just saved by grace so I don't do anything and not enough emphasis on because I'm saved by grace, I need to cultivate my spiritual life. That, that's what seems to be lacking in much of the church today. There isn't strong spiritual formation that's taking place in people's lives. But this is what Paul is telling us that we must engage in. And he says to do it, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Another way to translate that is uh, with awe and reverence. I think awe and reverence is a better way to maybe um, understand what he's saying. So what he's saying is this. God has done a miracle. He's put his life in us. That is so awesome. <laughs> That's a, an awe-inspiring reality. And, you know, if we maintain the, the awesomeness of this, that's going to keep us motivated to to grow and to develop our life spiritually. If we lose sight of how amazing it is to be saved, you know what happens? We start to slack off. We become careless. Now, I want all of us to think about this for a moment. Think about when you really came to know Christ. And I would imagine that for every single person who's really come to know Christ, hopefully it's still the case, but maybe... It's dissipated, but, but there's like this awe of what's happened to you. Man, I am saved. I, I've been born again. I, I have a new life. God, God loves me. All, all of those things. You're in awe of that. You're, you're just amazed. You can't even believe it. You wake up in the morning and just think, man, I can't even believe it. I'm saved. You see, that, that awe and that reverence is going to motivate you toward working out your salvation because you're not taking it for granted. You're not over the excitement of it. You're looking at it saying, man, I want everything that God has for me, so I'm going to put forth my effort today 
to see God work more deeply in my life. That's the kind of stuff that um, is being communicated here by the Apostle Paul. So work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now here's the next part. This is so great. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. This is the beautiful thing about what we're talking about. It's not that I have to just exert all of my effort and hopefully I will work hard enough uh, to work out that salvation. But no, I have to remember that God is working in me. Paul says, work out your salvation, but don't forget that it is God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Um, the NET, the New English Translation, puts it like this. For the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. Now think about what, what this passage is telling us. God works in you both to will, you could also understand that word to be to desire, and to do, which could be translated to work, his good pleasure. God is working in you. The Greek word for work is energize. God is energizing you. God is at work, giving you the energy. And the desire and the power, because the next word that's translated do here is the same word energize or empower. So for it is God who energizes you to desire and then gives you the power to do his will. That's what Paul is telling us here. And isn't that a beautiful thing? And think about it. The amazing thing is salvation, what happens when we are saved is that God gives us new desires and the power to fulfill them. God gives us new desires. In some cases, there, there are things, and I'm sure many would know this by experience. I know this by experience. There are certain things that when you come to Christ, there are certain areas where your desires just change immediately. It's just like, I no longer desire that. There are other areas where there's a process, but through a process of time, those desires begin to diminish and God's desires begin to dominate and, and to take over. You know, I, I think about, I've had a couple of conversations with two men who came out of the, um, you know, same-sex uh, relationships and so forth and came to faith in Christ. And they said that for a number of years, they remained attracted to the same sex. But then in, in both cases, in these conversations I was having with these guys at different times, they both said the same thing. But you know, as time goes on, I just feel that my desires are changing. And the first desire and, and the power was to resist even the, you know, the attraction that's still there. God helped them with that. But that's what he does. He works in us to will and to do that which pleases him. So what we're talking about here, as I said, we're talking about um, spiritual formation, but the old word for spiritual formation is sanctification. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about sanctification. So sanctification 
is part of, of salvation, but it's, it's the part that's a process. So salvation is um, it's justification, it's sanctification, and it's glorification. What does that mean? Justified means you're declared righteous. Before God, you are righteous. That's justification. That's salvation. So the minute I receive Christ, God sees me as righteous. But then sanctification is the process that I now enter into through which you are going to start to recognize that I am righteous because my life's going to start to change. And then glorification is going to be the time when everything changes because the old life has passed and now I have a glorified body in which there is no sin. So sanctification is the process of becoming visibly and practically holy. Notice what I said, visibly and practically holy. You see, positionally, you're already holy. Anybody who receives Christ, the moment you receive Christ, you are declared blameless and holy before God because you are in Christ. So God sees you and he sees you perfectly holy. But I don't see you that way and you don't see me that way and we don't see each other that way. We look at each other and we see all kinds of problems. We see all kinds of flaws. And in some cases, you might even think, wow, are you kidding? That guy's perfectly holy before God. How could that even be? Well, it's a positional uh, righteousness that God gives us. But sanctification is the process of becoming physically and uh, visibly and practically holy. So through sanctification, you're seeing me change. I'm seeing you change. We're seeing each other in day-to-day -day practice becoming different people, becoming people who are more like Jesus. Sanctification is the lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus in our attitudes, actions, and lifestyle. But remember, it's a collaborative effort. It is God working in us. So our sanctification, although we have to do certain things in order for it to move along, God is helping us do those things. He hasn't just left us to ourselves. He's working in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. So it's a collaborative effort. We work out the salvation that he's freely given us, and he gives us the desire and the power to do it. So how do we do this? How do I move along in this process? Well, this is where what we are going to call spiritual disciplines come in. This is where spiritual disciplines come in. We have things to do as Christians. If I, if I want to grow in my faith as God wants me to, if, if my faith is going to be worked out, if my salvation is going to be worked out like God says it is to be, then there are things I have to do. I have to engage in certain things. I can't just sit back and say, now I'm saved God's going to do everything that needs to be done. I don't need to do anything. If I do that, I'm, I'm never going to go anywhere. So I have to realize, no, God is going to empower me, but I also have to engage. And this is where what we call spiritual disciplines come into place. And this is just bringing uh, certain habits into our life that's going to help us to progress in our spiritual formation or our sanctification. So what are they? There, I'm, I'm just going to give us a, a small list here. Um, Bible, 
prayer, worship, fellowship, giving, serving. Those are disciplines that we must engage in if we are going to do what Paul said, work out our salvation. So we've got to engage in these things. Let's look at them for a moment. Bible. Number one, with the Bible. What does that mean? Well, God's given us his word, and it's through his word. Remember, this book is like no other book ever. There's only one book in the world that is inspired by God, and this is it, the Bible. And because this is God's inspired word, these words have power. Now, words have power, just sometimes, just human words sometimes will have power. But God's words have supernatural, eternal power. God's words have the power to transform your life. Just like God spoke the universe into existence, this, this word of God speaks into our lives and it transforms us, it works in us. So our relationship with the Bible is, our discipline with the Bible is that we are to read it, that we are to meditate on it, and we ought to memorize it as well. Reading, meditating, and memorizing. And as, as much as you do that, to the degree that you do that, you will find your life being transformed. If you neglect to do that, you will find that you are weak and you are spiritually feeble and you're not making progress in your sanctification. You can't do it apart from God's word. God has given us his word and we've got to engage with his word. And remember, this is when I was talking earlier, um, as wonderful as pastors and teachers and all of that are, that's great. And thank you for being here so I could teach. Uh, but you have to have your own diet of God's word. You have to read it yourself as well. You have to meditate on it yourself. You have to commit it to memory yourself because God is going to uh, form you spiritually through his word. Secondly, through prayer. And when I say prayer, and we're talking about a discipline, we're talking about uh, consistent times of individual and corporate prayer. Now, you know, it is true that some people only pray when they're in a jam. They only pray when they're in a predicament. And the rest of the time, they're just going on, cruising through life, and then all of a sudden, they hit some kind of crisis. Oh, God, help me. Um, you're not gonna be spiritually formed if that's the way your prayer life works. You have to consistently meet with God in prayer individually and corporately with other believers as well. This is how we form ourselves spiritually. God has given us this amazing opportunity to pray. And then worship. Worship is another thing. And worship is to make time and to take time to praise and to thank God and to offer ourselves daily up to him. That's what worship is. Paul, in writing to the Romans, he says, uh, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. So singing songs can be worship. Um, raising our hands can be worship. Closing our eyes, that can be worship, but it's not necessarily worship. We can just be going through the motions. Are we thanking God? 
Are we praising him for his goodness truly? Are we offering our lives to him because that's your spiritual act of worship? And so we are to engage in times of worship. What we do here as we sing songs, whether it's today or tonight or whatever, we're doing this to take uh, an opportunity to express to God our thanks and our praise and to present ourselves to him. And that is a spiritual discipline. Now, remember, a discipline is something that you have to discipline yourself toward. So left to yourself, just naturally, you're probably gonna, your tendency is to, gonna, to, to not do this. But discipline means you're going to do it out of principle and commitment. Two other things really quickly, giving. Giving is supporting the work of God. We give gifts, we give finances, we give things like that. That's a discipline. We do that because we want to be engaged in part of the work of God. And then serving, doing works that advance the kingdom and glorify God. So these are the disciplines. Now remember, God works in us to will and to do. God works in us. He puts desires in us. But, you know, it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be times when we're going to have a conflict, a struggle in our desire. And what we need to do is we need to push in the direction of what God wants us to do. So about 10 years ago, I started uh, running daily or, you know, back then it was daily. Uh, It's not so much daily anymore. But anyway, uh, I decided that I was going to run a few miles every day. And for the past 10 years, I've kept it up pretty consistently, you know, running at least three times a week. Now, there have been times when I have really desired to do it. Now, people talk about runner's high. I've never had that. But I have had times where there's just, you know, it's nice to get out by myself, to get my mind clear, to pray. And, you know, it's good. And I'm out and I'm doing it and I've enjoyed it. Um, There are other times when I absolutely hate it. I absolutely hate it. It's like I wake up in the morning and first thing on my mind is, oh no, I got to get out of bed and run. I don't want to run. I want to go back to sleep. And you know, I have had to discipline myself. I've just had to say, regardless of whether I feel like a run today or not, I'm going to go do it. And here's what I can tell you. Every time I do that, even though I kick and scream all the way to my place where I run, once I do it, I am so glad I did it. I'm like, oh, yes, I'm glad. And now I can go about my day. I feel refreshed. My blood's flowing and my brain's working and I'm ready to go. But there's an element of discipline that I have to exercise there. And so it is with these spiritual things. Guess what? There are times when you're going to pick up your Bible and you're just going to be like, man, I can't wait to read this. I am so excited about the Bible. Oh, I can't wait to pick up where I left off. And there are other times you're going to pick it up and go, oh, gosh. Oh, I got to read the Bible today. Oh, man, it's just been so boring lately. I just, it just seems like I'm not getting anything out of it. What are you going to do? Well, you need to discipline yourself. Just say, okay, that's just the way it is. I'm not going to let that deter me. I'm just going to jump in and do it. And it's going to be the same thing with prayer, and it's going to be the same thing with fellowship. I mean, how many times do you wake up on a Sunday and think, I don't want to go to church. I just, this is my day off. I want to go do this or that. But if you're going to work out what God has worked in, 
You got to just do it. You got to discipline yourself to do it. And so this is God's word to us. He has given us salvation as a gift. He wants this salvation to work itself out to its fullness. God has intentions for you. And in your thought process, in your life, in your, in your activity, in your plans and purposes and, and vocation and all of that stuff, God wants to work that salvation out into all of those things so that you become a walking, talking, loving example of Jesus. That's what God is wanting to work through us. The life of Christ working out through us. That's his goal. Now, in closing today, we're talking about salvation. Obviously, that's been our, our um, main point here today. But, but I want to say this as we finish up today. Maybe there's some one here. Maybe there are a few of you here. Maybe there are those that have never received salvation. And you might hear about it. You've, other people have talked to you about it. And you wonder, well, you know, just exactly what is that? Well, that's what we're talking about. It's, it's God's gift to you. And salvation is the greatest gift there is. There's nothing that can compare to it. I mean, sometimes I just feel like I, you know, preachers, and me as a preacher, it's like we never do this justice because it's the greatest, most wonderful, most extraordinary thing you could ever know in this life. It's salvation. And this salvation is God's gift to all human beings. We have to receive it. We have to receive it. It's like the greatest gift ever, but unless you receive it, it will not profit or benefit you. But if you do receive it, everything changes. It's a total game changer from this point all the way throughout forever. And so what is salvation? Well, I'm gonna give you two sides really quickly. On the one side, it is deliverance by God through faith in Jesus Christ from the penalty, power, and ultimately the presence of sin. Sin has a penalty. You know, there's not a single person in this world who is gonna get away with anything. That is a fact. There is no person who has broken the law of God that's going to get away with breaking the law of God. Even though it might seem like they totally got away with it, they didn't. You know, I've said this before. My wife loves these mystery things, you know, these 48 hours. She watches all of this stuff. And it's always amazing how, you know, even like with cold cases and all of that, you know, somebody committed a crime 50 years ago. And they're just like, you know, man, they got away with it. Well, they didn't really get away with it because for 50 years, they've known in their conscience that they did it. But then all of a sudden, the case gets reopened and they, they catch them. <coughs> and, and every time I see one of those stories, I think, wow, this is like, this is the way it is. Be sure your sin will find you out. It'll catch up. There's a penalty to sin, and that penalty is eternal separation from God. But there's a power of sin as well. The power of sin holds us in destructive behaviors that even though we know we shouldn't do this, we, we just can't seem to break away from it, and it's destroying us and people around us. Well, salvation is deliverance from that, 
And then it's ultimately deliverance from the presence of sin. One day we will be in a sin-free body and a sin-free world. That's what salvation is on the one side. On the other side, it is being given a new life. So let me ask you this today. Who wants a new life? (laughs) Would you like to get a new start in life? Is there anybody that would say, you know, I want a new life. I've screwed this one up. Man, I've made such a mess of this life. Salvation is a new life, a new life in the spirit. It's a new identity. I go from being a child of wrath, the Bible refers to those outside of Christ as a child of wrath means a child destined for judgment. I go to a new identity of being a child of God. And then I have a new purpose. God created me for specific things, good works to walk in. I enter into those, and then finally I have a new destiny. My new destiny is God's presence in his kingdom forever. That's what salvation is. And so as we close this morning, (coughs) if you are here today and you are not saved, you could not say, I'm saved. If that's you today, you can be saved today. And God wants to save you today. And Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago for your sins so that you could be saved today. So we want to give an opportunity for any of you to receive the Lord today. And in a moment, we're going to pray. The band's going to come out. I want to ask that nobody leave, but everybody just be praying at this time. Because I know there are a few people here today that God is calling them And he wants them to come and receive that gift of eternal life and then to enter into that wonderful plan and purpose that he has for them. So, Father, we pray as we now look to you that you would draw to yourself those that need to receive the salvation that you freely give through Jesus. That, Lord, is our prayer. And we're believing that you're at work in the hearts of people right now. So, Lord, draw men and women to yourself, we pray. Amen.